season two under the arch podcast yes yes we are and i've i have been looking forward to this episode for a long time look i'm i was so looking forward to it i skipped our tagline i tried to set you up for that and you You did but you know what we're gonna hit it now this is under the arch this is still still and always a podcast where we explore the issues facing our communities and the people fighting to transform them And as I was saying, I've been looking forward to this episode and this conversation for um, literally for for months now. (laughs) Yes, we've been trying to figure out how do we land this topic that is, you know, always important to our work and unfortunately too relevant in our communities uh, that we we trying to figure out this, this, you know, when to have this conversation, who to have it with. Um, but, it, you know, we've talked about it before because we opened up our episode, our first season. Talking That's about, very true. Yeah. Talking about this subject. So yeah. for those of you who are like, okay, Kayla, just say it. What are we talking about here? <laughs> We're going to be talking about policing. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, you know, the work that's happening in St. Louis and our broader um, movement around um, all things from defund the police, which has been a a demand of our movement for several years, but it's specifically become a national conversation um, over the summer after the uh, killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, and and so many others who, you know, we've seen lose their lives to police violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really eager to lean in on this, you know, defund the police frame because it has been such a major um, topic of public conversation. And I think there's so much um, misinformation, some intentional misinformation and misunderstanding. Um, There's a lot of sort of reflexive feelings about it. Um, but I'm I'm excited to really dive in because, as you said, you know, our work has really been focused at, at this intersection of policing as a particular institution and the kind of analysis of public spending and budgets um, for a long time, and that that is has very much come to a head over the past several months um, yeah. during during yeah. the most recent uprising. <laughs> And I mean, it just honestly is a, it's an origin story for many of us is how we come to know each other. It's, it's, an, it's how the infrastructure that is built right now in our community around our organizations has come to exist um, is out of, you know, is a response to the community resistance to police violence. So Action St. Louis would not exist if there was not a Ferguson uprising, if mm-hmm. Mike Brown was not killed in August of 2014. So um, policing is something that we're constantly thinking about um, because, you know, that is the issue, you know, that brings us, that brings me into movement. That really is uh, one of the issues that is the foundational questions that we're trying to answer as an organization. So how do you create safety that is not um, dependent on a system that over polices, over incarcerates and and harms our folks? Um, And I think that this entire piece around the, the demands that we've seen this summer, uh, I'm looking at a defund the police uh, yard sign in my office right now. Um, it really has become something that's been politicized and and pol- it's polarizing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I think I hope this episode really helps people drop into um, a conversation about what it means to actually be safe and how we have an honest um, and transformative conversation about safety and really look at policing uh, for what it is. Yeah, yeah, and and structural. You used a couple of words that I think are important. One is transformative. Um, another is is structural. We hear a lot of people talking about systems change, systems change, structural change. But this, to me, this is uh, this presses on that point. You know, for folks that really care about policing, police violence, responding to it, um, racist institutions. This this is that conversation. Like the difference sure. between more training and defund the police is a, stru- a structural um, yeah. distinction. 
And it's an evolution of our movement, which I think is so important for us to show out loud, is that in 2014, we were in a completely different understanding of what uh, it meant to correct things or fix things or reform things. And six years out, I think we've, we've not only been able to have a more transformative vision of this institution, but a bolder vision for our communities uh, yeah. to actually peel back what we need. And I think, you know, I, I want to get into the conversation about why we keep, why we see media and elected officials really collapse the conversations about policing into this bad apple phenomenon and not mm-hmm. look at the structure and the institution. And no matter where you go, where there are Black people, there are often too many police and there's yeah. often police violence. So, yeah. you know, we could talk about it forever, but we I'm have ready guests. for our guests. I'm ready we for have our guests. guests. And, you know, I'll introduce one. You introduce. Okay. All right. So I mentioned, I mentioned my origin story into this work and it certainly was uh, the Ferguson uprising as a protester. Um, and then I became an organizer. And one of the folks who I, I think he took a significant chance on me, he probably didn't know what he was getting into. But um, he he gave me my first job as an organizer and uh, is a mentor and a really good friend of mine and has been you know tied to our work at Action St. Louis and our campaign to close the workhouse um, in his proper work, in his proper day to day work. He he literally goes to different communities helping organizations build strong uh, coalitions and and campaigns around safety uh, targeted at, you know, things like divesting from police and divesting from pre-trial detention in jails Um, and, and just an overall good guy. You know, and so our first guest is Montega Simmons. Hi, Montega. Yes. Snap, 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 snap. Hope that was uh, that was beautiful. (laughs) That was beautiful. That was beautiful. I shed a tear. And our second guest, also equally amazing. And, and, you know, when I think about this person, um, I think about the people that were. pulled into this movement during the Ferguson uprising, the brilliant young black leadership that we're, we're really spoiled in St. Louis to have some brilliant young black leadership. Um, and, and this person is one of them. Um, he leads today forward through Ferguson, which of course is directly out of the legacy of the Ferguson uprising and the commission that brought together so many people to envision a different kind of St. Louis Um, And Forward Through Ferguson has itself been through so many chapters and had different folks at the helm. And I was personally so excited when this person came to take the helm. At at last time we were like, it's clearly you need to get this person. It's gotta be. It's gotta be the one and only David Dwight. Wait, let me say it right. David Dwight the fourth. When I I see the fourth, I'm like, wait a minute, that's royalty. The fourth. (laughs) David. David, fourth of his name. Fourth of his name. So glad, so glad to be here. So honored. Excited yes. for the combo. So for our listeners, you know, we we talk about policing all the time. We have group texts and emails and working documents where we really, you know, dig into the current state of policing. But can you talk a little bit about how you came into that work? Um, and, and why policing is such a significant issue that you're fighting, um, you're fighting on that front line for, to change, yeah, not for, to change. <laughs> Maybe we'll start with you, uh, Montega. Sure. Um, fair enough. Uh, so for me, honestly, it goes back to when and where I grew up. I grew up near the intersection in St. Louis of Natural Bridge and Lucas and Hunt, mm-hmm. um, which folks who live here, like Op Central. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, growing up, I actually went to Normandy Junior High, which was like right next door to Umsel. And mm. I was close enough, I actually had to walk home. And walking home, literally there would be cops patrolling us. Um, we're literally just walking back from school. And my mm. first interaction with a police officer was them literally stopping groups of us uh, to search us, search our bags, sometimes spread us on the ground. Royce Eagle, um, and just, you know, just rough for no reason. And then as I grew up in that footprint, learning to drive, the first thing I learned was how many different police departments there were and trying to find ways to root around them. 
because no matter where you went, you were always subject to not only their surveillance, but interactions that led to harassment. Um, and it was during a time that was pivoting where money was shifting from the quote unquote war on drugs to mass criminalization and then incarceration. So policing was right. Um, and then when I did finally actually come of age, uh, the Ferguson moment found me with the Organization for Black Struggle, where we'd already been trying to figure out like how to hold police accountable in our communities. And it brought all this uh, back to me because Mike Brown, like me, uh, graduated, had just graduated from Normandy High School. Uh, so for me, that very, felt very much like a full circle. Yeah. And how about you, David? Yeah, for me, um, so I've been in St. Louis for about a decade now, um, but moved around a lot growing up. And so I've lived in a lot of different communities, majority black communities, majority white communities, um, and then coming here in St. Louis to St. Louis and uh, the intense segregation that exists here and have experienced across all of those the things that young black people experience in interacting mm -hmm. with the police, whether that's getting followed around by the security guard and automatically being seen as a menace or a threat uh, to just picking up some snacks, you know, from the convenience store to my brother being pulled over in a majority white community um, out in Pennsylvania uh, where we grew up and where I went to high school. Um, and so definitely had those experiences. And then, came here to St. Louis for, for school, uh, for college. And I originally was studying engineering, uh, which is not what I'm doing now, but had this like <laughs> constant tension of being at this white dominant institution on a hill in St. Louis. Uh, and this profession that was supposed to be about improving things and the best new technology, but seemed so completely divorced from the experience of students of color and black students on campus, as well as the huge disparities and experience that, uh, that black people are subject to in St. Louis. Um, and so right before uh, my senior year was when Michael Brown was killed and um, I come back uh, uh, a little bit early, drove in with my dad um, a week after Michael Brown was was murdered. And my dad grew up in the civil rights movement, uh, born in 54, uh, and just had these conversations with him. There was a protest going on under the arch um, and was listening to his experiences growing up. Like he remembers having segregated drinking fountains and all those things and, and thinking about um, the legacy of my family, my great grandfather did work on voting rights access for black people in Florida. Um, and so kind of under that context, got connected with some students at SLU. We ended up doing a walkout on the first day of classes because there was a national call for students to do walkouts. Um, and from there, we started an organization called St. Louis Students of Solidarity that had um, chapters at about seven or eight different universities across the region from SLU, Harris-Stowe, Maryville, UMSL, Webster, Fontbonne, um, kind of connected to see how students could get engaged with the uprising that was happening uh, in St. Louis, and then also to push our schools to do better because universities are a huge, uh, like institutions of power uh, that can affect uh, racial justice and racial equity. And so through that met Brittany Packnett, but that's actually how I met Kayla Kayla, you and I met during the Ferguson Uprising. I totally looked up to you. Uh, you're such a powerful organizer. And I had the chance to meet you and Brittany Packnett at Pachoni on Del Mar. Um, <laughs> so sanguine. Wow, yeah. So sanguine. I just got to hear about like some of the organizing work that you were doing out in the community and learned a ton that we got to bring to some of the work that we were doing with, with college students. So I remember yeah. students in solidarity that that's, I haven't thought about it in a long time, but I remember that and shout out to Ruben who probably never listens to our podcast, but is also an intersection because he went to Wash U and was uh, our, you know, most faithful student leader at OBS um, mm. and eventually became an, an organizer with us um, 
around uh, economic justice. Yeah, l- listen, it's starting to feel, you know, I don't know if anyone else is having that effect when we're some, we're kind of six years out, how many different rebirths and like the mm-hmm. same people kind of moving into formations and settling into, into these new roles. I don't think that when we met uh, on Del Mar that we knew uh, action would exist or Ford through Ferguson probably at that point and that we'd be leading them for sure. And so... Yeah. Thanks for bringing that back. That. Connections all everywhere. All those alums <laughs> of students in oh, solidarity. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's amazing listening to to your stories, one of the things that occurs to me is uh, this thing, this phrase we say all the time of black people are not a monolith, and you know our experiences are all different and varying, and um, some of us, too many of us, grow up in communities that are over-policed and under surveillance, and you can't walk out of your front door without seeing cops circling the block. And then there are some of us that don't grow up in those communities and have a a different experience. But I think in St. Louis, if you're Black and have lived here long enough, all have some defining experience (laughs) with police. I mean, I, I lived across different parts of the county, and I would never say I lived in majority Black parts of St. Louis, majority white parts of St. Louis. But Traveling across North County, 170, 70, you can't help but be worried about anxiety, being stopped by cops all the time. And, you know, members of my family across the board have had these Mm -hmm. horrible experiences. And so even though Black folks are not a monolith, part of what you hear is like it it is defining in a way for us that it it oftentimes is not for for our white Mm -hmm. counterparts. Yeah, I, Um, I often say that I think everyone understood the interaction between Mike Brown and the officer on August 9th, if you were black in St. Louis, you knew what that stop was because mm-hmm. you had grew up in an environment where you saw that stop over and over again, whether or not, you know, it's driving. Um, I used to go to Bell Ridge in Normandy school district when uh, in third and fourth grade and just going from Bell Ridge to the middle school, you drove through maybe five or six municipalities that could pull you over. And I just will remember, yeah. you know, our parents, aunties, uncles, just feeling so much anxiety about driving down, you know, Natural Bridge and how Natural Bridge in the city is a completely different experience than Natural Bridge in the county. You know, or MLK turns into St. Charles Rock Road and you start hitting the brakes. Like, that's the reality of, you know, this culture that the county really represented, uh, this, this really intense type of policing that when I lived in the city as a child and even now, I don't even think about in the same way. But when you're on 70 and you're crossing Goodfellow, you look at your speedometer every single time because you know someone's sitting up on that, you know, well not, in, not now because our city has sued them to shame, you know, <laughs> but before our city, you know, was, was throwing uh, haymakers with lawsuits around, they were sitting up on those on-ramps, clocking your speed to stop you. Right. And yeah. 170 all the way down to Goodfellow on that mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Anybody? And I, sorry, sorry, Montana. I, I, I wonder um, what role that plays in what we've seen over the past six years, because we've seen this moment, these moments rather, from Michael Brown in Ferguson to Von Derrick Myers to the Stockley protests and the killing of Anthony Lamar Smith, that these are like such major flashpoints in St. Louis. Um, and I, I, I just wonder what you all think about the about why it is that it's this police violence and fatal police violence in particular that has led to these kind of moments of, of, um, you know, contestation of power of folks taken to the streets. Um, You know, how do you think about that as people that have lived in St. Louis as much as you have? Yeah. Immediately what's the top of my head is the moment that it became crystal clear that this was not everybody else's experience was literally a year after the uprising. Uh, we took a crew to uh, literally to, to present a piece of legislation in Jeff City. We had people there ready to testify. And with their public safety committee, it was full of law enforcement. And the thing that, that really shocked us, like even though they wouldn't support the legislation that was before us, they literally pulled out piece of the legislation and say, hey, we do this in our community. Hey, we have this. 
all these things we were looking for to reform our community, they were already living with. Um, so, I mean, I was thinking that like the reality of policing and over surveillance that we live with was the norm, not just throughout the city, but throughout the state. And it wasn't. So it was clear that they knew how to do something very differently, but there was an unwillingness to. Um, and I think for me, that that set in in a deep way that even with all the people that hit the streets, even with the uprisings we've seen around the country, it still hadn't landed like how very different it was here. Um, but just to hear them say it, like we were asking for very basic reforms around police cameras, around uh, what was it, uh, escalation. Um, De-escalation training. De-escalation trainings, things Lord. like that. And they were already doing it. Um, and honestly, it was it was a very reformist piece of legislation, but they'd already done that every place else but here. And that just took me back. Yeah. The evolution. Yeah. Go ahead, David. What you were saying, Blake, on like why why uh, that is the spark that uh, has ignited so much activism and organizing. I think of like two things. Like first is that it's the most obvious and direct way that systems kill black people because there are so many ways that systems across America shorten the lives of black people, like from the medical system to access to healthy foods to, I mean, just you can keep on every system some way that it shortens black people's lives. And this is the one that's like so clear. It's so in your face. It's so direct. And it's like such a, sadly universal experience like Montego was saying um and that's one of the reasons that it can be such a flashpoint like it's 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 a natural like concentration point for all the anger and hurt and trauma from racist systems and police are created to uphold the system as it is and laws as they are now and so yeah I think that's a really powerful way to articulate it because it is it is true that all these institutions, housing, and by, you know, all these systems create disparate outcomes for Black folks. And then in this one, we see this visceral um, in, encounter that results in loss of life. And I think what is so um, important about it is like the human psyche is in crisis because what you what you have been told all your life is that these people with this badge are here to protect, serve. They get the cat out the tree. They help the old lady across the street. They give the little kid a baseball card to tell him he can be anything when he grows up. They catch the bad guy. You know, like this is this is what you're taught from a very early age. And then as you grow up, you realize that for some, that is the illusion of police. But most of them aren't even, that's the illusion of police that they're seeing in images, not in interaction. And so, you know, I, uh, we are going to talk about this several points, but Miriam Kaba and Project Nia just released this really powerful video on the defund the police movement. And part of what they talk about is the origins of police and how often we do not talk about that it is steeped in this desire to protect capital, to protect those who have against those who do not have. And that's hyper-racialized, whether it be out of the South where it's slave patrols, out of the West where it was um, policing and control of uh, indigenous folks or in the North, working class folks who were fighting for, uh, you know, um, economic justice, that the police always stood against them to protect those who were the seeming, you know, the exploiters or um, the folks who were perpetuators of the violence in in a lot of the case. And so there's this reckoning that's happening that I, you know, this summer has really alluded to that we got to start interrogating the honest truths about, about this institution. And in St. Louis, you know, this institution is, I thought like Montega, I'm from here, right? I grew up in the city and, and, and county, evenly split across my childhood. I thought police had these micro little police departments. I thought that was normal. And in St. Louis, across the four counties of St. Louis City, St. Louis County, Jefferson County, St. Charles County, there are now 87 law enforcement agencies. And that's a, that's a if, I, if I'm not mistaken, is, is all of those counties together 1.4 million people? 
Just it's a little more than that if, with, if you add Jefferson. Jefferson, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's over two million people, but 87 different police agencies. Uh, and what we talked about, you know, was the impact of those. Can you, talk, can you both talk a little bit about the impact of having such a fragmented police um, apparatus and how that impacts the lives of, of our folks in St. Louis? So many ways. I mean, we were talking about Natural Bridge and on like a 10 mile stretch of of that road, you're going to go through like a dozen municipalities with their own police department that have their own standards that are all going to over ticket and pull black people over for nothing or for incredibly minor offenses. Uh, That's going to result in warrants. In, a very, in various different municipalities that all have their court systems, that all have different standards or open up their court two times on a random Thursday. Uh, and then people get arrested based off of that because they have outstanding warrants. Uh, and then it makes it so impossible to have accountability when you have 87 different police departments with different police chiefs and some of them like six people on the force. Or three. I think Kinlock okay. had three <laughs> people at one point. Montego, for, for you, you know, in 2014, there was the DOJ report. And then there was, you know, the Ferguson Commission report. There have been a lot of reports. But, and, and Black people specifically were like, we don't need to see another report because we live this. Um, how, how has that hindered progress around accountability, transparency, change, you know? all those different, all those different departments? Well, I mean, so one thing I'll name explicitly is like when I first started organizing with OBS, like what I found up front was there was resistance to do work actually in the county because there were so many different police forces. So the focus was often just on the city police, even though with lived experience with everything from stoplights uh, to literally just getting fined because your tags or out of date, or because you have something wrong with your car that you can't fix. Uh, most of the people who actually ended up like behind bars were driving through these little municipalities, especially if you live like, mm-hmm. if we keep talking about the, the district, like 24-1, the Normandy School District, driving down Lucas and Hunt, like just to get from one place to the other. Like part of what happens is folks got conditioned to a point that all of a sudden you would automatically decrease your speed. Any other place that you drive in the city or in the country, you got five to 10 mile kind of lane. But in these places, literally you go at or below whatever's posted, which meant that one, you're dealing with daily trauma, daily anxiety. um, And let alone if you actually have something wrong with your car that you can't afford to fix, that all of a sudden puts your uh, economic uh, stability in, in jeopardy in a real way. And this happened during a period when not only were they over-policing and increasingly incarcerating folks, but they were divesting from healthcare. They were divesting from any medical systems that would help with substance abuse and let alone access just to quality food, like in the places that we live. Um, so really it feel like a period of torture. So much here to unpack. There's so much here to unpack. <laughs> We got to go to a break. Um, it's time for our, our STL Music Minute. But when we come back, uh, we're going to really lean into this defund the police conversation. We want to really unpack um, that frame and phrase and, uh, and, and framework. Um, so we'll do that on the other side of the Music Minute. Uh, this is a very special STL Music Minute because we lost... A legend, yeah, an absolute local legend. Though she was more than just local, um, she really was an icon. Kim Massey, um, blues, jazz, soul singer extraordinaire, um, and I had the great pleasure of meeting her when she performed last year, almost exactly a year ago, at our ten-year 
um, celebration when Kayla and I were doing a live podcast recording at the 10 year. And Mm -hmm. she sang this song. We're going to play the audio for you of the the song that she sang on that night, which is love's in need of love today. Um, And, and I love this, this audio and I hope, I hope you all enjoy it. Good morning, all evening friends. Here's your friendly announcer. I have serious news to pass on to everybody. What I'm about to say could mean the world's disaster. Could change your joy and laughter to tears and pain. Is that love's in need of love today? Y'all know this, don't you? Don't delay. Send yours in right away. Welcome back to Under the Arch. Uh, that was our music minute by the incomparable Kim Massey, sending so much love to her family and all of St. Louis as uh, we collectively mourn the loss of such true, beautiful, raw talent. Um, and yeah, we are discussing policing today with our guest, Montega Simmons, David Dwight. Um, and, and we left off really the fourth, talking- The fourth, the fourth, you gotta say the fourth. The fourth of his name. (laughs) Uh, And we left off talking about St. Louis, the fragmentation, the impact of that, the socioeconomic impact of that, where we have seen, you know, in already working class, low-income communities, the impact of over-policing has uh, profound can can profoundly devastate people's day-to-day, right? People lose their jobs when they're arrested, um, you know, I have to tell the story when I was a teenager, I worked at the McDonald's on St. Charles Rock Road in Natural Bridge by DePaul Hospital. And it was once a week that someone didn't come to work because on their way to work, they got stopped and locked up. And um, our manager would go bail them out, you know. And so it's one of those things that became such a culture in St. Louis that people, um, they, they weren't questioning it. And then Ferguson blew that wide open, right? Ferguson blew that wide open and and our work has um you know what you said Montego started we started in a different place we were like oh yeah maybe body cameras oh maybe more training we're not there anymore and we're unapologetic about that we we've evolved because we've tried that we've seen that even in the with cameras there was George Floyd with more training there are still countless peoples whose lives are snatched away um, and there's no recourse for their families. There's no, there's nothing akin to justice. Uh, and oftentimes the state in, uh, closes itself in to protect itself um, from any sort of a- accountability. And so this year, even though it's not a new you know, framework, for many years we've been in the space of divest, invest. Here in St. Louis, that's been the Close the Workhouse campaign. You know, we, we, we really articulated what it means to take resources out of broken systems, invest them into community. But the Defund the Police campaign um, or initiative or movement uh, really took root this summer when, off, when there were uprisings across all 50 states. I'm talking Alaska, Maine, Hawaii, and everything in between. Um, and across the world where people, even right now in Nigeria, we're watching folks resist uh, police states. Um, so what, for those who are listening and they're hearing, they're seeing the signs and, and hearing the uh, mandate around defund the police, what does that mean? Um, and and how, would, how would a world with police defunded look? David. <laughs> So I think defund for me, defund the police is about another way of being as possible. <laughs> like we create the systems that we live under. They weren't like written into stone and <laughs> we birthed ourselves into the society as they are now. Uh, choices were made, decisions were made, resources were allocated, various interests were prioritized over others. 
And so defund the police to me is also about knowing and uh, knowing our power to create something different, to, to find a different arrangement of living that better prioritizes all of our interests um, and creates safety for everybody. And so when I think about defund, it's really thinking about the invest divest. You can defund to create something new. You can defund to reinvest uh, in a better system. You can uh, defund in order to show a value for equity because uh, budgets are values documents. Yeah, I appreciate that. I especially appreciate the what what is is not always what was, right? We did not always have 84 police departments in the city. We did not always spend hundreds of millions of dollars on the police that we've actually seen in recent years, these budgets balloon. Um, and so if it's recently changed, why can't it change again to something that looks like it's prioritizing a different set of values and a different set of people? I really like that framework uh, coming into it. Montega, um, defund the police. What's yeah. it about? The one, like, I think David's absolutely right. Like, it's a statement that says our political imagination can do better to keep folks safe. Um, but it's also a recognition that for so long, we've actually continued to invest in a system um, and experiment in ways to actually hold folks accountable that have continually failed. It's acknowledging that no matter the reform that we've actually rolled out to this institution, not only do people keep dying, the system keeps failing um, and is failing to respond to people that are in dire need of safety, whether it's for their mental health, uh, for substance abuse, or literally unsafe conditions. And every time we try to iterate uh, something that goes outside of the system of policing, the cry has been, we don't have the money for it. But yes, you do. The money is right there. It's just sitting in a police budget. So this is actually a demand to say, we're gonna divest again from the things that are not keeping us safe and invest in our people's own imaginations and creativity to create things that, that will keep our communities safe, whether it's from jobs to healthcare, to childcare access, to a hundred different things out of our black and beautiful minds. We got ways to keep our folks safe. Uh, we just need to really reclaim uh, that space and the money to govern ourselves. Mm. Yeah. 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 I was going to pose that question to you too, Blake. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm ready to answer. I mean, Montega inspired me with the uh, with his answer. Wasn't and, it good? It was. It was very good. And you know, I to to put it even more plainly, some of defunding the police to me is just about exercising common sense. I mean, everything that Montega said about mm-hmm. what we know about police and its ineffectiveness and actually addressing our challenges makes it very clear that we have to come up with different kinds of solutions. We have to create different institutions, different practices. And for me, and and this is coming as someone who has come to identify as an abolitionist and our organization has articulated an abolitionist um, values and commitments But I actually think defund the police is almost like a compromise. It's like, I don't actually need you to be an abolitionist to understand that we're wasting our money big time on this institution, that we are spending all the money we have on an institution that doesn't actually meet our needs. And some of that really speaks to the ways that that police show up in our lives because we we receive kind of... um, uh, pop culture and mass media images and messages about what police do and what they are. But when you actually pause for a second and think about just where police are, where you see police, the story's a lot more complicated than that. And the answer is something like everywhere, right? We see them in our schools. We see them in the parks. We see them in the stores. We see them at the banks. We see, you know, they're they're everywhere. And can we not come up with institutions that can actually address the needs in those various spaces better than police and policing? What about you, Kayla? I think, you know, I often, um, I think a lot of what I would normally say Uh, has been said. And I think that there's this really important piece around function, right? That like police, as we understand what we believe they do is not what they actually do, as you said, Blake, and what we need to be done in our communities for actual safety is not what police bring. And so 
And we cannot talk about policing in the present day context without talking about the racialized history. Police have always stood as the states, the government's um, first kind of level of defense against transformation, whether it was the civil rights protests in the 50s and 60s, whether it was the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that took place around Trayvon, whether it's the defund the police protests that we saw this summer, where police were literally with laughter, tear gassing, shooting, harming. The president has used police to clear out folks for a photo um, that when we think about their function, it's not always on the side of the people who do not have. It is not on the side of the people who are disempowered by policy or impacted by these institutions. It is usually to preserve the political influence of the institutions. And so when someone is having a crisis, right, in St. Louis, when Kajim Powell in 2014, 10 days after Mike Brown was killed, was having a crisis, what we saw was two police pull up incapable, uh, regardless of how much money we spend on training, even with a camera. We saw all of that still kill someone who needed assistance. And and again, we we when something is broken, you don't continue to invest in it. At some point you have to say, this is not working. And I think we get, we get caught as uh, organizers or activists and people to not debate these ideas that when the state responds and says, oh, this is just one bad apple. It's not one bad apple. Every year we lose thousands of people to policing and thousands more we don't lose, but they're harmed by police. Mm-hmm. And if the app, if, if a tree is producing bad fruit, You don't just pick the bad fruit off the tree and walk away. You think about the roots and the soil that is producing this fruit. And if we actually want to, if we actually want something that's producing something that will nourish our community, heal our community, help our community, we got to plant new seeds. Yeah, we just can't pluck off the bad apples and think something's going to something better is going to grow. And so I I think that you know we got to think about function. We got to think about scale. How yeah. much just the sheer amount of money? We spend more money than some countries have as their entire budget on police. Yeah, <laughs> we, right. you know, in, in major cities um, and scope that they are not, they are ill equipped. They're just simply ill equipped to respond yeah. um, to the things that our communities need, and so they they show up with brute force um, in some sort of way to dominate, and that is actually what's perpetuating this very violent um, institution. That is, that's, that's lit- we're losing lives. Yeah. David, were you trying to get in there? Oh, yeah, I was, yeah, I was going to say that just, I mean, just saying they've named Kajimi Powell. It's like, I can see the video. It's like seared mm-hmm. um, in my head. And so just how traumatic it is for so many St. Louisans. But I, I, to the like function point, it makes me think a lot about the Ferguson Commission report. And I think a lot of the policing calls to action, the Ferguson Commission report are more harm reduction, which as you were saying is where like, a lot of the field was at that point mm-hmm. uh, and we were learning, but especially in these last like eight months to a year, I've been thinking about the commission report and the Ferguson commission was created to look into this, this incident, right. Of a police killing. And those 3000 community members came back at that with education, mm-hmm. child, mm-hmm. early childhood, hunger for kids, jobs, training, uh, graduation rates. They came back with housing justice. They came back with all these things. And I think because fundamentally, even if we couldn't all articulate, although there have been some people out here talking for generations about uh, abolition and the role of police. And even though we couldn't fully articulate it, like we knew it. We knew you know what that the root saying. causes. Yeah, we yeah. knew that the root causes had to do with housing. They had to do with yeah. strong neighborhoods. We knew I it had to do with that. health. Yeah, the wisdom is there, and and from the the moment you've we began asking communities, you know, years ago about this concept of reenvisioning public safety, that it was already there. It's not like anyone who's doing the work today around invest divest came up with that. We went and talked to folks in community, and to your point, David, they knew what they needed. Mm-hmm. Um, this also it, it tees up. Um, a question that I, I'm really eager to ask folks, um, when, as Kayla was talking about the this bad apple narrative, like that to me is one of the most 
pernicious myths about policing, that every time we see harm done by police, that it is an example of bad apples, which is obviously ridiculous. But but the, our reliance, our current reliance on police and policing rests so much on that kind of myth and misconception. And I'm, I'm curious for others, what some other examples of the kind of popular myths we have about policing are and what the, the, the realities of policing are. Like, what are some other examples of that, that bad apple myth that we have? I, I can go first. I put you on the spot if you don't have it. <laughs> I have one. I, I have one. I think that there, the one that came to mind, and I, I won't say the one that I know you're going to say, but that this idea that more training will make it better, right? Mm. That this is, that that's a myth because police get a lot of training, annual training. They were already getting implicit bias training before Mike Brown was killed in a lot of instances. Yeah. And I think training becomes a political response to delay or um, to stifle uh, political response, like grassroots energy, right? It's like, listen, we can, we can, if we just give them more training, things will change. Mm-hmm. And again, I think when we talk about function, when we define truly what police are in our community, what they have been, they're trained to do that job. Yeah. And we have to interrogate that. They're not trained. They are trained to do the job of protecting property and capital and those who hold political power by over-policing, arresting, incarcerating the, the kind of have-nots, the, the folks who are on the margins of our society. And more training isn't going to stop them from meeting that function. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Monte, you look like you were stewing on something. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about it, and I don't want to like lay this as a hard indictment. But we invested a lot of energy and resources in community oversight with the belief Mm. that we could actually continue to hold police accountable, even Mm. though we've seen over and over not only an unwillingness to share files, but an unwillingness to be transparent Mm. and participate in the process and an outright intimidation of folks from actually filing their claims. Mm. So I think that's one that I have. That's 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 yeah, a good one. That, that's, that's a very good one. Yeah, that that I feel agitated around that. <laughs> that's because I, I do think, you know, to, to David's point, to your point, we, we've tried so many things, but we have to know when something's not working. Yeah. David, what were you going to say? Just off of what Monte was saying is that a lot of times, because it is like a more surface level way of going about it, because it's not like more community oversight is a bad thing, but it all depends on what structure, like what the, what the roots are, like what foundation mm-hmm. you're building on. Mm-hmm. And so it reminds me of like the Breonna Taylor investigation where it's like, we're hoping that the courts and the grand jury will like deal some kind of justice or some kind of like incarceration of the officers. But fundamentally the laws, the local laws, the state laws, <laughs> like protection yeah. at the federal level, are yeah. just not set up. So you could create like a community oversight board there, but if every the whole foundation is still set up against the rights of people of color, it's not mm-hmm. going to do anything. You, yeah. you another thought, like when you say Breonna Taylor, I'm thinking about the guy who announced. People always think the more mm-hmm. cops you have, the more justice you yes. like to And for those of us who've actually lived and interacted with black cops, we blatantly know that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, have actually many of us have lived through corrupt departments that have been run by black people. Mm-hmm. I have another one. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a game uh, that if we, <laughs> if, we, if we simply had more police, the police wouldn't be so stressed and react so poorly right. to <laughs> in the encounters. Right. I mean, this, it's a this, one way ratchet. Yeah. It's like if it's we just gave more, them more, more, more capacity. Yeah. And every time I look at that, I'm looking at, you know, plus two million, plus five million, mm-hmm. plus seven million going into this mm-hmm. already balloon structure instead of going into those things that we know people have identified that keep them them safe. Yeah. What about you, Blake? What's your myth? Yeah, well, my I cheated. I did think about this beforehand, but mine goes back to this <laughs> this 
function question, like really critically to what did they actually do? And I think that most people in their imaginations think that police are going around preventing, interrupting violence (laughs) and preventing harm and stopping all the violent criminals in the world from doing harm. And it is such a tiny, tiny piece of what they do. And we actually do have some facts and figures on this. And we know that police spend the majority of their time not responding to anything criminal, quote unquote, at all. The majority of their time is spent on non-criminal calls, on traffic issues, on these completely mundane things that are not preventing harm, are not preventing violence, but rather are just sort of showing up in our lives routinely. And only one to three percent, one to three percent, folks, of what they do is responding to violent crime calls. I mean, if, if, if we made TV shows that actually showed what police do day to day, they would look nothing like law and order. They would look nothing like anything that's on television or in any movies, or movies I love like Bad Boys. It wouldn't look anything like that. Yeah. Most police officers make one felony arrest a year on average. Mm-hmm. One. And on average, most of those people are under the poverty line. Yes, absolutely. Poor, it is, it people, is people of color. We know that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the imagination part too, where it's like, it's not that a police officer has never done a good thing <laughs> right, <laughs> or like right. helped one person, <laughs> but we kind yes. of take that like individual and we say everything's like that, or it's the bad apples things. Mm-hmm. Uh, when like the data just doesn't show that. And I think that's one of the like big, uh, things that has to be like interrogated with the defund conversation is that a lot of black communities are in that mode too. Uh, I was at a neighborhood a kind of like public safety meeting and people are in crisis and they're looking for someone to call to help because of real crises that are happening. But like you're saying, Blake, they may arrest like one person, which first of all, incarceration doesn't actually, you know, improve that person's lives or really make people safe in the long run at all. And then on top of that, it's reactive, like you were saying, Kayla. Yeah, it's reactive. You call 911 after something has happened, Mm -hmm. right? And the the truth is, even in St. Louis, where we are seeing... um, high levels of communal violence, right? Like people, people are being killed in our communities um, at, a, at alarming rates, you know, and, and not to even step into the way that our elected officials, um, you know, try to politicize it and make it this like for the first time in a decade, it's like, no, every year in communities where there's a lack of resources and disinvestment, there is violence. Mm-hmm. And until we solve the underlying issues of, the divestment and the lack of resources, there will be violence. And so sending police into those communities only adds the potential of more violence because police do not address the divestment and lack of resources that are in the communities. And so what we often see is that people call 911, but they don't feel like that even help, that will, that's going to help the situation. And statistically, it doesn't because even approaching, you know, over 200 uh, shootings in the city of St. Louis, about 70% of them are unsolved. And so again, what we are spending time on, and every time that happens, what they say is, well, we just have more cops. But when we had more cops, when there were more people in the city and we had more cops, the, the, the clearance rate was still low, abysmal, right? And communities were still divested. And so now the city is fighting to lift the residency requirement. They're fighting to add 100 cops in the next year to the force. And I assure you, for those who are listening, I promise you this, even if they do that, nothing will change except more poor people will get locked up for crimes that are unrelated to the extreme violence that folks are saying is the justification for adding more police to our uh, the, the force here in St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm so glad you made that point, um, David, about the, the way these conversations play out and where they play out. Because in fact, when I think about, you know, having deep conversations about defund the police, I think precisely about my family, 
communities I grew up in, communities where we are working, representing people, organizing. You know, I'm, I'm not even thinking about the folks that I know are opposed to our interests. I'm, I'm thinking about folks who I know have been given such limited options and much of our work is really trying to expand what we believe is possible. And so I'm, I'm so glad that you you raised that point. And I, I wanted to shout out, um, actually he's a, an Arch City board member, but this isn't why I'm shouting him out, but John Robinson, who's a professor at, at Washington University, wrote a really brilliant piece um, that I, I would recommend to people. Arch City has shared it on our social media. We'll put it in the link to this show. Um, and it, it was in the uh, Boston Globe and it's called The Defund the Police Debate is Being Warped by a False Choice. And it's everything you all have been saying that in fact, the choice is not police or danger. The choice is police or structures and practices and systems that actually help to create safety in our communities. We have to begin to sort of think about things in a different way. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad you raised that. And I know we're down to our last, um, our last few minutes here, but um, we, we certainly did not want to uh, fail to mention that part of the reason we were eager to bring this group of folks together is because um, a few of our organizations, uh, four of our organizations, <laughs> uh, Action St. Louis, Arch City Defenders, Ford through Ferguson, and, and CAPCAR, which is represented here, Coalition Against Police Crimes and Repression, put out a guide recently around defund the police. Um, and I just wanted to, to offer a minute, um, David, if you wanted to say a little bit about why why you and, and Ford through Ferguson partnered on that guide, um, what you hope people can take from it, um, yeah. Yeah, because we have to transform public safety. Uh, St. Louis can't be a thriving place until all of us feel safe um, and have what we need to thrive. Um, and that means stretching ourselves to actually create those structures that will meet people's needs. Uh, like Kayla was saying before, um, you know, safety in schools is not best served by a cop and by locking down schools and turning them into mini prisons uh, that's not going to actually help those kids feel safer um, you know people uh, who have problems on the roadside are not going to be served by police coming I actually remember uh, this was a few years ago I was doing piano lessons of all things uh, in like a majority white municipality out in the county. Um, and it was a smaller neighborhood and my car breaks down in the middle of this neighborhood. And I, this was like an old clunker. I had put way too much money into it already. Didn't have a lot of money to uh, pay for the repairs and you need a car for as much like moving around as I have to do for my job in St. Louis and officers were called and mm. instead of trying to assist me i was like treated like a suspect they called back up on me i was talked down to uh threatened and i still had these bills for this car i was not helped i was not you know helped to get a tow truck or anything like that um and so for us it, it's it's so vital that we're moving towards actually investing in strong education systems, housing systems, mental health and healthcare systems um, so that we're actually giving people what they need to thrive. So that's why uh, we were really excited to join on with the guy. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Uh, and Montego, what, what do you say to folks who you know, want to learn more, want to sort of deepen their knowledge in this area, want to get involved in efforts to to really move the ball on shifting resources away from police. I mean, one, like here, I'll definitely point them to, honestly, your organizations um, to plug in, to join. Uh, but for resources, honestly, I point them to, if not M4BL.org, I also point them to the Breathe Act. Um, the Breathe Act.org actually is new federal legislation that largely embodies what we're talking about um, as the federal remedy to begin moving resources mm. away from policing as a, as a remedy for people. Thank you for bringing up the Breathe Act because uh, as folks in our spare time who help to, you know, um, 
our leadership in the movement for Black Lives. The Breathe Act really is an articulation of this invest-divest framework in federal uh, legislation that can be made local, where it incentivizes alternatives to policing, which is significant to us in St. Louis. You know, we um, it's connected to, I'm wearing my Close the Workhouse t-shirt today, it's connected to this work that we've done to really say to folks, what makes you feel truly, truly safe? And I hope that at some point, after you listen to this episode, you maybe take a piece of paper and a pen and you write it down. When do you feel your safest? And what are the things um, that you need in order to feel that safety? And people feel safe when they are in stable environments where they have access to choice and options and resources. Um, and you know, when, when they're in community. And to me, we can't we cannot walk away from the fact that in St. Louis, we spend well over $200 million on police and we spend barely $6 million on affordable housing. We spend pennies, if at all, any pennies on the folks who are unhoused. Uh, we do not have a robust transportation structure that allows people to move to the more economic parts, um, development for, for economic opportunities and jobs. Um, we still are forcing low-income children people to take out loans to go to school to advance um, advance themselves. And when we really start thinking about safety and opportunity, in most of those pictures, there is not a police officer. There is not. And we can't we can't let ourselves get you know caught up or pigeonholed into a conversation about individual actors. This is an institution. Uh, this is this is a system. Uh, and if we don't challenge it at a systemic level, then we're going to allow we're, we're going to be playing whack-a-mole for the rest of our lives, you know? And the thing is, I don't want to play whack-a-mole. I want to unplug the machine. That's what we need to do. So thank you to our two guests today. Thank David you. Dwight. Thank you. Of Ford so through Ferguson and Montana Simmons. Um, <laughs> you are listening to Under the Arts. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with our closing announcement, as we always do. Welcome back. Welcome back. What a great conversation. I love those two. They're they're so great. Montega Simmons, David Dwight the fourth. Or the fourth. <laughs> I just, you know, the four is a lot. I that that sticks in my head because it's like it's you're true. not just it's a junior. Important. It's legacy. A it's legacy. It's legacy. It's really important. It's it really, is. really important. And they were they were so phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I'm still kind of stewing on some of the things that they mentioned about the decisions that we made and who we prioritized and in the pathway to getting here and how we can imagine something different tomorrow. Such a, such a great episode. Certainly one of my favorites. It feels good to be back in a rhythm of having new episodes. Isn't it? It's nice. It's nice. We're getting right back into the same group and to do another one on policing. Like I was thinking a lot about our first episode on policing, Mm -hmm. Heather Taylor, Derricka, police abolitionists. And this really felt like a nice continuation of that discussion. So we hope you enjoyed it. Um, and we will be back with much more. So to wrap us up, we want to remind you that uh, Close the Workhouse is very much back at it. The mm-hmm. uh, board bill passed this summer, um, not a board bill, an ordinance passed this summer, uh, directing the closure of the workhouse by the end of this year, 2020, December 31st, 2020. And there are some shenanigans happening and some people making noise about not doing that. So the campaign is right back at it, demanding justice, demanding that that jail be closed, that the funds be reallocated. Um, and there are ongoing public safety committee hearings. I believe this episode is coming out on the day that there was already one. So I wish I could tell you to go to the one on October 20th. But there will continue to be more public safety committee hearings. And please follow Close the Workhouse campaign on all the social media handles so that you can stay up to date and get on the mailing list also, the, the email list, so that you can be up to date and, and receive our calls to action to make sure that we get this done this year. For sure. And speaking of Close the Workhouse, our little baby that's out here, we won an award, Blake. I don't know if you knew this, but actually we won the Best Activist Award for the Riverfront Times. We were the staff pick. 
And that it says, amazing. as its name suggests, the Close the Workhouse campaign focused the energies of activists, attorneys, community organizers, and even former inmates on a single goal, making sure no one else had to spend another night in St. Louis's medium security institution, a place whose very nickname, the Workhouse, is derived from the O's old debtor's prisons of St. Louis, 19th century justice system. Wow. Thank you. And it goes on. It talks about our reports uh, and it it ends with a quote from our statement when the bill passed that we are not just closing the jail. We are proving that another world is possible. That does not just apply to the jail that applies to our understanding of police and prisons and jails and surveillance as we move toward a new world where we're actually invested in things that make people thrive. So not only congratulations to you, Blake, but our entire team shout out to the squad the squad the staff the organizers the volunteers the people who've answered the doors who've made the calls who've done Mm -hmm. the emails who've come to the rallies Mm -hmm. who get on those Mm -hmm. power hours who Mm -hmm. pick people up who bring food who watch kids yes thank you and the members of this campaign the the people that lifted their voices impacted people at the center of this campaign thank you for your thank you all so much we are we are almost there and we're going to get there. Hell or high yeah. water, you know? Yes, we will. Um, we yes, are going to get there. So someone should tell the mayor <laughs> that she needs to go ahead and, and get it done. Um, yeah. yeah. And speaking of, of, you know, speaking of elected officials and elections coming up, there's one on November 3rd, which this episode happens before. And I hope that you, if you, election day is every day until November 3rd, mm-hmm. we are in election season. If you can vote absentee, vote absentee. It's not too late to request your ballot. Uh, the last day uh, is going to be the 21st. Request that ballot, get it in. There are now in the city of St. Louis, several uh, sites in each corner of the city where you can vote absentee and not have to go downtown to the Board of Elections. You can vote at uh, multiple um, places in St. Louis County. If you can vote early by through the absentee process, get that done because we're already seeing across the country historic number of turnouts in multiple states. And here in St. Louis, we know that this election matters um, from the amendments to the candidates, the whole thing, turn it over. If you have questions about the election or any information about it, you should go to our website, actionstl.org, follow us on social media, because that's what we're talking about for the next, at this point, 18 days. And probably by the time you hear this, we'll be closer than that. That is great. And while we are um, bringing electoral justice, we also are continuing our work on all parts of the criminal justice system. And Arch City Defenders is actually going to be hosting two upcoming virtual sessions on expungement. And this is really the beginning of of, um, some significant work we're doing around expungements to try to get as many people as possible to be able to clear their records, um, which unfortunately, but not surprisingly, the state of Missouri has made very hard, but not impossible. And we want to make sure that every person who can reduce those barriers to housing, to employment, to all sorts of things is able to do so. And so we're starting with these two virtual sessions to um, really help people understand the expungement law, eligibility to have expungements, the, the, um, the benefits of, of clearing um, records of arrests and convictions. And so those two sessions are on Tuesday, October 20th at 12 p.m. I think that is the day this comes out at noon on Tuesday, October 20th. And the second is going to be the very next day on Wednesday, October 21st at 7 p.m. So Tuesday the 20th at 12, Wednesday the 21st at 7. And if you want to learn more uh, and register, please go to the events tab on Arch City Defenders website, which is just archcitydefenders.org. Word. This is not just a podcast where we bring you people who are changing our community, but we give you opportunities to help us change our community. Right. So take action with Under the Arts and our organizations and be sure to plug into all of those events. With that being said, all announcements have been given. Um, we would like to thank our team, our phenomenal phenomenal team always Um, z nathan simone the entire squad here at under the arch uh this is a this is an operation of love 
Mm-hmm. And patience for the two hosts who <laughs> are hard to land. Um, but we are so grateful for our team and so grateful to be bringing you new episodes um, as we get ready to wrap up season two. If you have any questions, please remember to follow us at Under the Arch Pod on all social media platforms. Uh, if you want to send us a music minute, you can do so to our Under the Arch Pod at gmail.com. We would love to hear your feedback and we can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you for listening. This is Under the Arch. Mm-hmm.